Everybody doing well? Good. We're going to start a series this morning, getting back to more typical how we approach the Bible. Not that one way is better or worse, but we've just come out of kind of a topical thing, uh, looking at the gospel. And, um, but the way we usually do it here is we like to get into an actual book in the Bible uh, because we just believe that if we're doing topics every week, that, that allows for us to set the agenda. But when you get into a book of the Bible, it really lets God set the agenda. And so we give the agenda to him. And through Daniel, um, he's going to lead us and shepherd us as we go through the book of Daniel. So let's turn there in our Bibles right now. I just want you to know my voice is not doing too well. It's football season. (laughs) It's not just because I'm a fan screaming at the TV. I'm an actual coach. Um, And you could say my love on the football field is loud. (laughs) So Daniel chapter 1. Found on page 719, we like to stand for the reading of God's word. You can stand with your heart or with your whole self. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered, the Lord gave, literally is how it reads, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the furniture from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put those treasures in the house of his God. And then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family, the nobility. Young men who were without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. And he was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. And the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine right from the king's table. And they were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Jews, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. And again, the second time you see this clause, now God gave Daniel favor and compassion with this official. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other men your age? The king would have had had my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please, test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat, water to drink. And then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat food from the royal table. And treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. And to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds 
of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar himself. The king talked to them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they entered the king's court. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about what the, which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. It's God's word. You can be seated. So we're in this book of Daniel because I think you're going to see not only how God's people are to live in the world, but to be inspired to be God's people as we live in the world. And this is part of the story. I mean, we just read narrative, and the Bible itself is narrative. It's, it's one big story. So we need to find ourselves, uh, our place in the biblical story. And the background to this, and obviously you should start asking, like, what are they doing in Babylon? Well, the setting of the book of Daniel is one of devastation. Not just devastation to God's people, but devastation to the story, to the story of God. Because we've come to a point where it seems like everything is lost, everything is hopeless, because this great world empire, Babylon, comes to Jerusalem with the world's most terrifying army and lays siege to it. That's verse 1. Now, a siege is starving a city to death. That's literally what a siege is by cutting off all supply lines. Josephus tells us, the historian uh, of the first century, um, says four months into this siege, all the food was gone. Gone. And if you want to step into the shoes of, 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 of what that meant to the people living there, just go to the book of Lamentations, because Lamentations is a book in our Bible that's written to give expression uh, to the suffering and the pain of those who were enduring the siege. And I'll just give you a, a couple of verses from chapter 4 in Lamentations. The tongue of the suckling infant cleaves to its palate for thirst. Young children beg for bread, but no one extends it to them. Those who once feasted extravagantly lie destitute in the streets. Those who are brought up in scarlet clothing wallow in garbage. Their appearance has become blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled to the bones. It became dry as wood. And hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food. It's a holocaust. Jerusalem will eventually be sacked. The temple will be destroyed. Only the best will be survived because only the best uh, get to survive because they're going to serve Babylon. And the best are then deported back to Babylon to a strange place 
a thousand miles away. This is the background of the book of Daniel. It's when everything seems lost. It's when everything seems hopeless. And you can get into that, that, that expression of this hopelessness by reading the book of Jeremiah, because Jeremiah is a contemporary of this time um, giving expression to it. Uh, Lamentations, you can go there. Uh, but I think the, the, the most succinct place to go is Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. And there in the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs that we sing, songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. And you, daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you deserve. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. That's the cry of people who are in deep, deep pain, despair. And all I can say is that when we're in places of pain and despair, God allows for us to lament and to pour our hearts out, even and say things that seem inappropriate. Let's go back to uh, Daniel 1, verse 1. Right there you have the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem. And you have two very theologically charged terms in Babylon and Jerusalem. Because while Babylon and Jerusalem are actual places... In the Bible, they also represent this cosmic struggle between good and evil, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, which is why you could say the Bible, which is the story, is the tale of these two cities, of Jerusalem and Babylon. Babylon, the city of man, Jerusalem, the city of God. Because we see these two cities already at the very beginning of the story, Then we see these two cities throughout the story. And then the culmination of the story, we still see Jerusalem and Babylon. Read Revelation. Now the Hebrew word for Babylon is always Babel. They don't have the term Babylon. Babylon is Babel. And if you remember when that first shows up in the beginning of the biblical story, that that big tower that, that they build in Babel... Um, it's the humans, human race's attempt to build a tower so big for the sole purpose of na- making a name for itself. Because that's what Babel is. Babel is characterized by pride and selfishness. And we know this city all too well because... The expression of Babel exists all over our world. Look at our cities today. Our cities are idols to Babel. Because Babel is just that. Babel is the place where we go to make a name for ourselves. It's the place where we go to prove ourselves. It's the place where we go to climb the ladder and make it to the top. It's the place where where it's, it's all about me. It's about me becoming a me about promoting me, 
advertising me, exalting me, pleasuring me. It's your life for me. That's Babel. And that's what Babel theologically means in, in the text. And that's why Babel, if you know what Babel literally means, it means confusion and chaos. Because Babel, that's what it produces. It produces confusion. It produces chaos. Uh, the city of man, Babel, is a place of burnout and exhaustion and despair, ultimately. But then there's Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is the city of God. And, and, and Jerusalem, literally, it name, its name means place of shalom. And, and shalom is this, this Hebrew word that we translate peace. But it's far more than just peace. Shalom means completeness, wholeness. It means rest. It means perfect harmony. It means prosperity. It means blessing. Shalom is Eden. Shalom is the kingdom of God. And so in the story, God plants his city, the city of God, Jerusalem, in the center of the world to be this new Eden. To be shalom and to bring shalom to Babel, to the chaos and confusion of our world. And why is Jerusalem the, the, the place of shalom? It's for the simple reason that Jerusalem is God's city. This is the place where God says, I live. I make a house. I pitch my tent. And I live in that city because I am shalom. And I bless the people of this city with shalom. But it doesn't end there. They're blessed with shalom to bring shalom to the world. And see, this is exactly what Israel is called to be. They're called to be Jerusalem. They're called to be the city of God. They're called to be this new Eden, this city that sat on a hill, that priests the presence of God and the power of God and his redeeming resurrection uh, power into Babel and into the world and into the chaos. And so if you want to know what's lost, it's, it's not just a, a brick, brick and mortar city, but the whole program by which God is redeeming the world, is no more. It's finished. That's how our Old Testament ends. In fact, the Hebrew Bible, the last book of the Hebrew Bible called Tanakh is Second Chronicles. And you go to the last chapter, chapter 36 of Second Chronicles, and it describes in detail everything. And then you could just say, the end. And so for, from all appearances, especially to them living in that day, it just looks like evil's the greater, evil's the stronger. Babel triumphs over Jerusalem. The city of man sacks the city of God. God's house is destroyed. How do you make sense of this? Or what about in our world today? Does it sometimes look that evil is the greater, that, that evil is winning, that the kingdom of darkness is, is winning against the kingdom of light? 
I want to show you three words that ought to change how you see everything. And go to verse 2. And the three words I want you to see are, the Lord gave. I know, there's a phone. It's all, it's all right. It's part of the deal today. I had a pastor who uh, I used to sit under, and every time a phone would go off, he'd say, can I answer that for you? Um, I'm not that guy, though, so I'm not going to ask that question. And the Lord gave. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, Judah's king, into Babel's hand. Who gave? The Lord. God did this. Because God sits on the throne. God is control of all kings. He is in control of all empires. He is in control of all world events, even hurricanes, or whatever it is that's going on in our world, where our world is quaking, and it looks like evil is the stronger. Guess what? God's in control. He sits on the throne. He rules. And I see so many Christians today who are losing perspective. I, I, I hear all this doom and gloom. But then even when it comes to Jerusalem and Babylon, who wins? Just go to the end of the Bible. Go to Revelation. Start reading in 16, 17, 18, all the way to the end. It's not Babylon. It's Jerusalem. God's city. Or if you want to even get into the particulars um, and, and, uh, of life and, and personalize this at, at the micro level, uh, think about the story of Joseph. I mean, Joseph's life is, is filled with losing. He's sold into slavery. He's exiled to Egypt. And then later in the story, when there's famine, um, his brothers go to Egypt to get food, but the only way that they can get food is by giving up their brother Simeon. And so they come back again from home with the grain, but they have to tell their father Jacob, uh, but we don't have Simeon. And Jacob says this. He says, I lost Joseph. Now I've lost Simeon. Everything is against me. But here's what Jacob doesn't understand, is that at that very moment that God is moving heaven and earth on behalf of Jacob. He is orchestrating everything for Jacob and his family because behind the scenes, what God is doing is he's, he's spinning Jacob's suffering into gold. And the evil that, that, that it feels that it's working against Jacob, God is actually using that evil for Jacob and Jacob's family and for the whole story. Do you know that? You have confidence in that. Because the same thing is, is going on at this part in the story at face value. It just probably feels like everything is against us. 
Everything that defines us as God's special people who live in God's special place with this special call in our lives. It's, it's all been destroyed. It's no more. It, it, it's ruined. And they're left in this place of devastation and exile. But one of my favorite texts in the whole Bible is what God speaks to his people through the prophet Jeremiah in this situation. In Jeremiah 29, God says, look, Israel, I know the plans I have for you. And those are plans to prosper you and to give you success and to give you a hope and to give you a future. And yes, while you're exiles right now, yes, I understand you're right in the belly of Babel, but this is all part of my plan. I carried you to this place as a father carries his son. And I have a plan and a purpose for this. And a plan and a purpose for you. In fact, I've brought you to the center of the world stage for this great mission. And it's going to start with you getting this in your identity. I want you to push your, 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 this idea that you're exiles deep into the understanding of who you are. You're exiles. And this gets pushed so deep into God's people as a part of their identity that by the time you get to the New Testament, Peter, in 1 Peter 1, addresses Christians. He says, to all the exiles. So what's an exile? Theologically speaking, biblically speaking. And as I say this, I want you to ask yourself, am I an exile? Do I understand myself to be an exile? An exile is someone who's not at home in this world. An exile is someone who is fully in the world, but not of the world. An exile is someone who chooses to do life not based on comfort or safety or being in control or or, or prospering, but rather an exile does life where they can best carry out the kingdom of heaven. Is that you? Is that Crossroads? Because this is the label that was placed on, on, on our forefather, Abraham. He, the Bible calls him an exile. In fact, one of the places, Hebrews 11, where it calls him an exile, right before that it says this about Abraham. Abraham was as good as dead. Dead to what? Dead to the world. He wasn't making his home in the world. An exile is someone who's dead to the world system, dead to the world's way of thinking, dead to all the things the world says is, are cool or not cool, dead to this need to be relevant, dead to having to have the world's stuff, the world's fame, dead. Because an exile is someone who is free. They are free from the world's hold on them, and they hold everything that the world gives to them with open hands. Easy come, easy go. Money is just money. A home is just a shelter over my head. A car is just something to get me from A to B. Clothes are just something to cover myself with. And see, when God sees that, he says, I can use that. 
I can take that and push that right into the belly of Babel and change it and redeem it. That's exactly why in, in Jeremiah 29, God says to Israel, Israel, I want you now as exiles to settle into Babylon. I want you to do life there. I want you to do it now as my new Jerusalem. And your mission now is to be shalom and to pray shalom, shalom into Babylon. And see, this isn't just Israel's mission. This is our mission because Jesus looked at his followers and said, You are to be that city set on a hill. You are to let your light shine before men that they may see your goodness and your good deeds and give glory to your God, Father in heaven. That's why Crossroads exists. We don't exist for ourselves. We don't exist just to hold worship services on Sunday morning. Whether you know this or not, you are in the locker room right now. And I am your coach. And I'm giving us God's marching orders. And God's marching orders are far more than than what we're doing right now. God wants his people as his city, placed in the city of Grand Rapids, being the city of God, this new Eden, the kingdom of God, right there in the city of Grand Rapids. Bringing shalom to chaos. And if you're sitting here wondering, like, man, why, why does God allow these things to happen to his people? Why does he allow this devastation? Or, or, or even it's probably personal to us, to you. Like, why does God allow devastation in my life? Like, why does God sometimes take things that are precious to me and just take them out of my life. It's because God advances his kingdom through exiles. Through people who aren't clinging to Babel and the things of Babel and seeking Babel, but the people who hold everything like this. So let me ask this right now. Are you an exile? How tight is your grip on the world? Whether it be your home or whether it be your possessions or your job, your career, your future, your 401k, your kids, your dreams about how your life should go. I mean, what is it that you're seeking? Babel? Or God and his kingdom? Now, Babylon's uh, strategy as, as ruler of the world, they wanted to create the greatest city that the world had ever seen. So what they would do is when they would conquer a people, they would essentially practice social engineering. Because what they wanted to create was this master race of people uh, that inhabited their city of Babylon, making Babylon the greatest city in the world. So they would destroy a people, they'd come in, conquer a people group, the poor, the elderly, the sick, the physically challenged, would either be killed or sold into slavery, and then they would determine who the very best of this uh, people were, and they would take that, those best back to Babylon. And that's right in our text. 
right in chapter 4. Because here's what they're thinking in their mind. Not only do we want the best to return to Babylon, to make Babylon the world's greatest city, but we also need to make them Babylonians. And so we really need to annihilate what they are. And the way that we're going to annihilate them is we're going to seduce them. We're going to seduce them into our way of life, our way of thinking, um, seduce them into our gods, because through seduction, we can wipe them out. And how do you do that? Well, look at verse 4 and 5. You find people who are from the royal family and nobility, and then you find young men without any physical defect who are handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, and quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. And then you teach them the language, the literature, and, and all the, the, the things of Babylon. You push that in them. You indoctrinate them. Because again, what they're thinking, that is, as long as we give them our best, our best education, and uh, the highest rank, and, and our best food, even food from the king's uh, table in time, we're going to seduce them into our way of life. And in one or two generations, we will have annihilated them, annihilation through seduction. And I think verses six, six and seven get to the heart of the whole matter of what's, what they're trying to do and what's going on. Because verses six and seven sa- says, among them were chosen some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So their names are changed. And to us, it's like, no big deal. A name is just a label. But in the ancient world, your name is your identity, and your identity determines your destiny. Names meant everything. And in almost every Hebrew name is the name of God. Whether it's El, El is one of the the, the Hebrew word for God, so it's sometimes at the beginning of a name, Elisha or Elijah. Uh, Sometimes it's El is at the end of a name, like Daniel or Israel. The other name for God is Yahweh, and they just shorten it and they make it Yah. So sometimes Yah can be at the beginning of the name, sometimes Yah can be at the end of a name. Yahshua, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Because to a Hebrew, they understood we can't have a name. We can't have an identity apart from God. Our identity, all the, 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 the totality of how we understand who we are and why we are here, it has everything to do with God. We belong to God. We are here to wear his name, to put his name on display for the world to see. And that's why what's going on here, if, if they allow for Babylon to name them, it spells their death. Because like I said, it, it, that name is their identity, and that identity will determine their destiny. So if Daniel becomes Belteshazzar, or if Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah became, become Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's game over.
So let me ask, who are you? What are you, what, what are you doing here? What's your name? Do you know who you are? See, and this is one of the dangers of Babel, or one of the strategies of Babel. Go back to the first story about Babel. Babel is where we go to build a tower to make a name for ourselves, because that's what Babel does. Babel promises to name us. Babel will give you a name. It will give you a name through the making of money, or fame, or how beautiful you are. Babel would love to name you. But the moment that we allow for Babylon to name us and give us our identity, it's done. And this is why a Jew, when when they read this text, or they refer to who we call Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that will never come out of their mouth. They will never call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's Hananiah. That's Mishaiah. That's Azariah. And this isn't just speaking to who we are, but it's also speaking to our mission because God does want to redeem Babylon, and it's not going to happen through a people who become Babylonized. It's going to come through a people who are holy, as God is holy, who are utterly distinct from Babylon, but who are moved into Babylon, into the heart of Babylon, and they use that distinctiveness to change Babylon. And this is why I get frustrated when, when, when Christians today say that we need to be relevant. We, we, we need to be relevant in our world. God has never placed that call on his people to be relevant. Or to fit in. The call on our life is to be holy as God is holy. It's to be set apart. It's to use our God-exalting distinctiveness to change and redeem the world around us. I mean, how can we reflect God if we're not like God? And I'll tell you, one of the things that I noticed when we lived in Israel, in in Jerusalem, about six years ago for a whole semester, and trust me, Jewish people have lots of faults, but they have this thing called swagger. They're so confident. Their kids are so confident. They just walk around with swagger. And I couldn't help but just ask, why do they have so much confidence? It's because they know their name. They know who they are. And come hell or high water, come persecution or holocaust, they're not giving it up. That's Daniel. Look at verse 8. Daniel resolved to not defile himself. And I think we're talking about a relatively small thing. We're, we're talking about food and drink. And yet, if you've read the book, you know that God spells out for his people um, what their distinctiveness is to look like in the most basic things of life. 
uh, when it even comes to their dress, he says, I want you to wear tassels. When it comes to um, how, how you spend your time, six days a week you work, on the seventh day you keep Sabbath. When it comes to food, he says, I want you to eat kosher. How old is Daniel? Verse 4, in Hebrew, that word means boy. This is a kid. This is a teenager. It's a teenager with convictions. It's a kid who's put stakes in the ground to say, this is who I am, this is what I believe, boom. And you talk about pressure for this kid to conform. We're not talking just about peer pressure. We're talking about the pressure that comes from being around the elites of the world. People who have some of the most power in the world. He's around it. And what I want us to see is that Daniel's not a separatist. Because many people who try to hang on to their to their distinctiveness, separate themselves from the world. That's what Pharisee literally means. It means I separate myself from all the bad. Daniel is actually immersed in it. He's going to the University of Babylon. He's, he's in the highest court of, of Babylon. The king of Babylon is just right there. If you want to know what our marching orders are, look at this kid. He's loving the world. He's immersed in the world. He's he's fully in the world for the world, but he's remaining utterly true to God. I want to know if this kid still exists today. I want to know what produces this kid. And it even caused me to look a little bit closer at the story, and, and, and I discovered some pretty cool things. Uh, Daniel, in the formative years of his life in Jerusalem, raised in, 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 in the nobility there. The king that was the king when he was just a kid was Josiah. And you know anything about Josiah? Josiah, the Bible des- describes as the most godly of all kings. He was a man after God's own heart in every way. He's the one who brought the book the book back to the center, not just so that God's people would know it and talk about it and sing it, but so that they would walk it out. He wanted revival. And then I thought, Jeremiah, I don't know, he probably went to the temple regularly living in Jerusalem and heard guys like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, contemporaries of his, preaching God's word. But then I... My, my, my years in youth ministry, all of a sudden just said, no, put all that aside. I don't want to know what church he went to. I don't know what great pastors this guy heard. I want to know who his dad is. I want to know who his mom is. I'd give anything to be a mouse, to be in that home and see what that home was like. I mean, this just cuts me to my heart. Because if I, if I have any Daniel qualities in my life, 
It's because I was raised in this home. I had a mom and dad every day open the book. Every day to this day, they talk about Jesus. I knew growing up every day, the last thing my parents did before they got in bed, where they were on their knees praying for me. That's what grows this game. Then I stop and think, and this is part of the reason why it cuts me in my heart. I, I, I've dropped the baton. That's easy for me to say because I can repent. I can re- I'm already in, the, in, a, in a place of repentance. I can return to being what was handed down to me. Because the reason why, why we're here today, why we love God, why we come here and, and, and worship him, why we're going to leave this place and try to live for him uh, the, the, the rest of the week is because there was a generation way back during the time of Daniel that was faithful. And they handed the baton off to the next generation. And the baton was handed off to the next generation. And the next generation. And the next generation. And we have the baton right now. It's in our hands. The time is ours. What are we going to do with it? We're going to run the race. You're at stake. I'm at stake. We're at stake. Our families are at stake. The next generation is at stake. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. And dare to make it known. I love verse 9. There's those three words again, and God gave. This time God gave Daniel favor and compassion with the official over him. And it's not going to stop there. Uh, Daniel, throughout this whole story, we saw it at the end of Daniel 1, he's even going to get favor with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is going to look at Daniel and, and, and have such an exalted view of this teenager. And the only reason verse 9 is reality is because of the stuff of verse 8. Favor comes when we put stakes in the ground, when we have convictions that burn in our minds and hearts that we're not going to form, but we're going to remain true to God. When we can say to things that that's wrong, when we can say, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to go there, I'm not going to look at that, I'm not going to eat that, I'm not going to drink that, I'm not going to participate in that, because I've resolved to not defile myself. And it's not just what we say no to, but it's what we say yes to, that our hearts say yes to God. Our hearts say yes to God's word. Our hearts say yes to God's path. What God-exalting stakes have you put in the ground? 
What convictions are you willing to die for? Yes, we live in a world where it's cool to say, I don't have any convictions. But you can't do that as a follower of God. And I hear Christians bemoaning other Christians who are putting stakes in the ground and saying, this is what I believe. This is what I hold to. Time is ours. The baton is in our hand. He's going to drop it? Our homes need to be God-saturated. We need to forsake just the seeking the things of Babel and becoming Babylonians. I love how Daniel lives this out because he's not obnoxious. He's not judgmental. He's not like, oh, that food is just so awful and bad. Shame on you guys for even offering it to me. What's wrong with you? He's humble. He's confident. He has this confident humility this, that, that, that can only come from God. He's like, hey, sir, um, can we try something? How about if I eat kosher? Just give me water and vegetables. Let's see how I look after 10 days. Okay. And what I want us to see here is that when we go God's way, that God's way always means life, and going against God's way always means death. I mean, this is what God says in Deuteronomy 30, after he lays out his way with such clarity, the path that they are to walk. He says, now the choice is between you. It's a choice between life and death. You can either choose to go my way or you can choose to go against my way. But what you're choosing has implications that are as great as life and death itself. And then look at verse 17 because this is the third God gave. This time God gives special knowledge and wisdom. And why is God giving this special knowledge and wisdom, even this ability for Daniel to interpret dreams, It's because when God sees someone, even be it a little kid, who rejects the world's offerings of food and drink for their thirsty soul, but instead takes their thirsty soul to the hand of God and they drink from God so that they can be useful for God, you better believe that God is going to give them special eyes to see and special knowledge to know the things that God is up to in our world. I just want to end with this question. What gives us the power to be a Daniel? What gives us the power to actually put stakes in the ground? Stakes that are unpopular. Stakes that, 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 that the world wants to snuff out. And not only snuff out the state, but the, but the people that are putting the stakes in the ground. And I'll tell you, we need something more than just a technique. We need more than a how-to. We, more, we need more than just three steps to this. We need a power to come in our lives to, to actually make those stakes in the ground. And I'll tell you the power that we need. It's God's stake. It's God's ultimate stake in the ground. It's the ultimate God gave statement there could be. God so loved the world, and he gave, God gave, his only son. God says, that's my stake in the ground. It's my son on that kind of stake.
And when you think about it, that's who God is. God in Christ left the ultimate comfort. He came into the ultimate chaos. He went right into the belly of the dragon himself so that he could give us the ultimate shalom. And see, when, 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 when this reality, when we behold it, when we look at it, and when it comes into our mind, when it comes to our heart, and we see that God did this, and that he did that for me, and he did that for me to bring me into his great eternal city. That's the thing, that's the power that comes in our lives to, to allow us to put stakes in the ground, and to live like him, to be like him. Or it's not your life for me, but now I can live my life for you because I behold him. And so behold him, trust him, seek him, fix your eyes on him, and get him into the center of your life. Let's pray. Thank you for this great time we get to live. The world is shaking, it's quaking. Things are being turned up and brought down. For such a time as this, God, may we courageously be your people, your people, in your place, living out your shalom, bringing your shalom to chaos. May we fix our eyes on Jesus. Amen. Let's leave the locker room and uh, get on the playing field this week. Let's live for him with all our heart. Not in obnoxious, judgmental ways, but in distinctive ways that exalt Jesus. Put him on display. Have a great week, you guys.